0: The greatest, most controversial, most enduring, most important man who ever walked the face of the earth. And we're in the Gospel of John in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your Bibles. Last week we saw chapter 2 end with belief based on a miracle. Today we're going to see John chapter 3 begin with a miracle based on belief. And Jesus is going to have a conversation with a man called Nicodemus. And that conversation is going to give us one of the most important passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Jesus is going to answer the question, what it takes to be saved. How do you get to heaven? He's going to be clear, he's going to be blunt, and he's going to make sure there's no confusion about how you and I can be a part of his family, the kingdom of God. So let's jump right in, verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We're going to take a few minutes. Let me give you a quick profile of this man, Nicodemus. This is your first fill-in on your outline. He was devoutly religious and very spiritual. He was devoutly religious and very spiritual. The Pharisees were a group of about 6,000 Jewish men who, who had made it their goal in life, to live in complete obedience to every single part of the laws of God, the, what we would call the Old Testament, every single minute detail. And the Pharisees came to exist during the intertestamental time. It's just the 400-year period of time between the Old Testament in your Bible and the New Testament. There's about 400 years there. It was an all-time low as far as people serving God in the nation of Israel. Nobody was doing it, and the Pharisees got together with very good intentions and said, let's return to following God. Let's try and obey his law. That's where we need to start. Let's get everybody else to do it, and and maybe we can see some type of spiritual revival or resurgence in our country and in our people. That's how the Pharisees came to be. It's a good motive, but they very quickly got carried away. They hired and organized a group of guys called the scribes. And all the scribes did, their full time job, was to search the scriptures, study the scriptures, study the laws, and then figure out how those laws applied to everyday life. So, what did they actually look like? And that's all the scribes did. So, for example, the Ten Commandments says to honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath was just Saturday. And the the goal was for it to be a day of rest and a day of worship. God said, I don't want you to do any work on the Sabbath. I want you just to rest. I want you to worship. That's it, no work. And so the job would fall to the scribes to figure out, well, what defines no work? What, What defines work? And so they came up with ridiculous rules like, well, how far can you go from your house before it becomes work? You know, when does the average man start sweating? Or so, or, so they'd say, well, you can go about 3,000 feet from your house. After that, it, it's just work. So if you wanted to follow this meticulously, they would do things like, like tie, a, a tie a rope to their waist, or, or, a rope to their house, 3,000 feet long, and that would let you know how far you could go. But they soon began to look for loopholes because they would run into problems like, well, well, what if I need to go further than that? And they would say, well, the, the law is 3,000 feet from your house. So uh, what defines a house, really? So what they would do is they'd go 3,000 feet, build some type of temporary shelter like a lean-to or something... Take another rope, and that would give you 3,000 more feet. So you could go 3,000 more feet from the new extension you just added to your home. And that's that's what you would do. And things would get completely out of hand really, really, really fast. And it's as ridiculous as it sounds. And, And this is why Jesus hated most of the Pharisees, because they weren't concerned with the heart behind the law. They were only concerned with meticulously going through the ritual. God, God would have told them, I gave you the Sabbath because you need to rest. You need to stop. You need to stop and have a day every week where you get to appreciate me. You get to appreciate your family and the land that I've given you and the life I've given you. I just want you to give you a, one day a week to, to rest and enjoy that. And, and instead, you've made it a burdensome task. God hated that because the Pharisees and the scribes made it a burden to follow God and walk in obedience to him. And I was thinking about this because we all go, <laughs> that's so ridiculous. And I was thinking, is there, is there a modern day equivalent of this? And I think I came up with it because I think almost every single believer becomes a Pharisee before they get married. Because every believer has the thought, "Well, well, what defines purity? I mean could you go this far? Or what's not technically this, so maybe it's that. And that's the best insight we have into sort of what was going on. And the problem with that is the same problem God had with the Pharisees, is that the heart behind the law has been completely forgotten. And you're just looking for loopholes, as though what God wants is well-behaved boys and girls. That's not what he really wants. So the Pharisees made it their task and responsibility to enforce all of these extra laws. And if you broke them, you would be tried and punished. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he's also a member of the the 70-person Sanhedrin, the, the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court, the ruling religious and cultural elite. So put this on your outlines. Nicodemus had tremendous social standing, and respect in the community. Tremendous social standing and respect. He's a spiritual man. He's a religious man. He's, he's one of the best. He's a part of the ruling elites in Jewish culture. And among the Pharisees, there were still some very sincere but misguided men. And these were men who genuinely wanted to please God, but they were completely missing the point. And Nicodemus is one of those men. Because of his sincere devotion to the scriptures, Nicodemus would have been very charitable. He would have been a great neighbor because the Old Testament says things like love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he would be the kind of guy, you come home and he's just mowed your lawn for no apparent reason, just to be more holy and just to be more righteous. He, he would have been a genuinely great guy. You can write that down. Nicodemus was a great person. He was a great person. Your next fill-in is going to be, he had great wealth. He had great wealth. We know this because later on, Nicodemus will become a believer in Jesus. And when Jesus has been crucified, Nicodemus will show up with a large amount of costly myrrh and aloes, these these spices, this fragrance to be used in wrapping Jesus' body. In fact, Jewish tradition names Nicodemus as one of the three wealthiest men in the nation of Israel at that time. He's from a very prominent family. And this is doubly significant because at the time, the general belief was that wealth was related to godliness. So the more money you had, the more God liked you. It's not true, but that's what they believed, so they esteemed him highly. You can write this down. He was the most prominent teacher in Israel and a scholar of the scriptures. We're going to get to this later, but Nicodemus, we're going to find out, is not just well known. He's the most prominent teacher in israel he knows the scriptures inside and out let's jump back to verse two it says this man came to jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs these miracles that you do unless god is with him there's a lot of different theories as to why nicodemus came at night to meet jesus some say it was because he feared what people would think of him. I don't really buy that because we see the Pharisees confront Jesus in broad daylight all the time throughout the scriptures. What's most likely is a couple of things that, that from Nicodemus' perspective, he and Jesus were both very busy and Nicodemus wants a private audience with Jesus. So it's highly likely that the only time he can make that happen is at night. And they'd often go up onto the flat roofs of their house. Every, every house had access to the roof, sit there and enjoy the cool evening breeze that's probably what they're doing but i think god also orchestrated this because jesus later on is going to draw some parallels between light and darkness and belief and unbelief and at this moment nicodemus is an unbeliever and he's coming at night it's sort of a picture of the fact that he personally is in spiritual darkness he's in a place of unbelief but he's come to see jesus because he's sincerely interested in talking to him he's not trying to show him up because he comes to jesus privately he's not looking for an audience with anyone other than jesus He believed that the miracles Jesus were doing demanded further investigation, and and he doesn't want to miss what God might be doing because he gets the sense God's doing something through this Jesus guy. It's just interesting to note that at this time, pretty much all the Pharisees were apparently in agreement that Jesus was, at minimum, a teacher come from God. They all said, this guy's a teacher who's come from God. They don't crucify him because they think he's a teacher sent from God. They crucify him because he claims to be God. And it's the same thing we find in our culture today. People aren't really that offended if you say Jesus was a great teacher. But the dividing line where people start getting up in arms is when you make the claim that Jesus is God, which he hasn't really done at this point to most of the Pharisees. So they all say, this guy's a teacher from God. Let's find out more about him. Nicodemus goes out of his way to be respectful and complimentary to Jesus by calling him rabbi, which just means teacher, Jesus was a craftsman, remember? He works with his hands. And so the general view of, of all the Pharisees would have been, this guy's a, a simpleton when it comes to the scriptures. There's no way he has time to really know the scriptures, to really know what's going on. So Nicodemus is addressing Jesus as an equal, and in his ignorance is letting Jesus know that he graciously recognizes that he may have some insight into the scriptures. Isn't this the way many of us have approached God? You know, God, God, I recognize you may have some insight into my life, perhaps even as much as me. (laughs) Nicodemus is coming that way to Jesus. And by the end of his conversation with him, Nicodemus, like us, is going to realize that he's the one who's ignorant, not Jesus. So if being a good person is what saves you, Nicodemus is covered. If if being sincere and devout is what saves you, Nicodemus is covered. If going through the right rituals and, and keeping the law is what saves you, Nicodemus is covered. He's got all the bases covered. So surely Jesus is going to affirm him in some way and say, Good job. You're rocking it. You're killing this thing. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Moral man, religious man, spiritual man, sincere man, devout man, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't you you love Jesus' directness? He doesn't give a second to Nicodemus' flattery and say, well, thank you for for recognizing me. He just cuts right to the chase, goes right to the deepest questions and issues of Nicodemus' heart. And Jesus shocks him with an opening statement, not of how is your walk over here. Jesus' opening statement to Nicodemus is essentially, yeah, right now, You're not saved. You're not going to heaven, Nicodemus. That's where it's at right now. This conversation is going to move a little more quickly than Nicodemus was probably expecting. You can write that down. His opening statement is, you're not saved, Nicodemus. When you see Jesus say the words most assuredly at the beginning of sentences, in your Bible it might say verily, verily, or amen, amen, or truly, truly. It's just what someone says to really emphasize what they're about to say at that time. So somebody says that when what they're trying to say is pay close attention, what I'm about to tell you is extremely important and I mean it. That's what it means. In, In the original language, it's just amen, amen. So verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born and we can tell nicodemus is sincere because he doesn't scoff at jesus when jesus says you're not saved he doesn't say there must must be some mistake have you seen my office there are many certificates on my wall he doesn't say that he he just engages with jesus right away and he wants to know "Well, well what do i do about this and nicodemus doesn't ask why should a man be born again he says how How can this be? How can this happen? Because Nicodemus, you see, recognized his own need to be made new in the depths of his soul. He recognized that. Even though he was better at keeping the law than almost anybody else on earth, he recognized that his attempts were not enough. And although others looked at him as a respected ruler, he knew what was in his own heart. He knew what was there. And when he looked inside, he saw frailty and failure. Though everybody else looked at him as someone very spiritual, he looked at himself and and he saw a sinner because he knew what was going on on the inside. And I wonder how many nights Nicodemus fell asleep full of this unspoken desire to begin again, to live differently, to love God more fervently, to serve his family more humbly, to treat people more gently. We've all probably felt that longing. It's that human desire to begin again, to have a fresh start. That's the dream. And here's Jesus, this rabbi, offering him that chance. And Nicodemus is not a skeptic, he's not a scoffer, he's seeking, he's seeking. In verse 5 it says, Jesus answered, again you see it, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, there's multiple theories about what water means in this verse, but Jesus actually explains it in the very next verse. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the water that's being referred to there when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit is just the water of our physical birth. When you were born, your mother's water broke. And Jesus is simply saying, just as you had to be born physically to enter this physical world, you must be born spiritually to enter the kingdom of God. Every person in this room was born physically. There's no debate about that. We're all 100% on the same page because you're here. That's how we know. In the kingdom of God, every single person has been born again spiritually. There's a distinct event that took place. You, you were once in the physical darkness of your mother's womb before you entered the light of this world in an event. And you are in spiritual darkness in this world until you enter the spiritual light of the kingdom of God when you're born again. That's the parallel he's making. Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand, write this down, that there's nothing you can do on a physical level to solve a problem that is ultimately spiritual in nature. There's nothing you can do on a physical level to solve a problem that is ultimately spiritual in nature. In other words, no amount of acting good is going to make you good on a spiritual level. You need a spiritual transformation, not a behavioral modification. And our world is full of people and full of theories that basically espouse the idea that if you can change your behavior, you will become someone different. You can change who you are. And as Christians, we know the folly of that. And we believe the complete opposite. We believe that a spiritual transformation Produces change in behavior. It is a path of despair and doom to try and look at yourself and say, I want to be somebody different. So I'll start acting like somebody different and then I'll become somebody different. The problem is when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you know who you are. You know. You know who you are. You're not fooling anybody else, you're not fooling yourself. Jesus says, I didn't mean for it to work that way. I want to change your heart. And then your behavior flows out of that. Concern yourself with your heart, with your spirit. In verse 7, Jesus continues and he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You want to underline must. Does must mean that it's optional? Does Does it mean that it's something you can take or leave? What does must mean? It means you must. You must. There is no other way. There is no other type of Christian than a born-again Christian. There's not different flavors. There's just born-again or not born-again. Jesus says you must be born again. In verse 8, Jesus continues and he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is explaining that just like the wind, you you can't see the wind. You can only see the force behind it. And in the life of the Christian, you can't see the force behind the Christian. Only its effect in the Christian's life. The Holy Spirit is seen in its effect on a person's life. You can fill that in on your outlines. Jesus said that non-believers would know that we are his disciples by the way we love each other in the faith. Jesus even said, he said, they're going to know that I'm in you by the effect of me in you, the way you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to understand that while being saved does not make you perfect, it does produce a change, even from the first day that you're saved. Not perfection, not everything sold overnight, but a change. Something begins to change. Priorities begin to change. Humility begins to grow. And if you believe that you're a Christian, but there's nothing about your life that changed after you encountered Jesus, you have to ask yourself a very serious question. If you're claiming the wind is blowing, but the leaves aren't rustling, you might need to ask, have you really been born again? Have you really been born again? Or have you just had, like Nicodemus, a religious experience? You know, every day you and I benefit from things that we don't understand. Most of us drive cars that we don't understand. If you're a man, you pretend to understand. We use microwaves and electricity and cell phones. And however smart you are, I guarantee that at some point you are using something you do not understand. You don't know how it works. And if you decided to only live using things that you completely understood, your life would take a significant step back. A significant step back. And Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand that if he limits himself in his faith only to the things he completely understands, he's going to miss out on the most important thing. Being saved. Being born again. The Bible says God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We know some of who God is, what he's chosen to reveal. But we literally cannot comprehend all of who he is. Our minds can't handle it. One day we will when we see him face to face. But following Jesus means sometimes being willing to live by faith. That's why the Bible says you're only saved by faith. Do you really understand why God would come for you? Do you really understand why Jesus would leave heaven to be crucified for you? I don't. Not just about you, but about me as well. There's a mystery to it. And Nicodemus is in this place where he cannot deal with mysteries. Can you picture Jesus and Nicodemus? They're they're on the roof of the house. They're talking by night. I would imagine that a cool breeze just begins to blow. As Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's saying there's, there's a mystery to this Nicodemus you cannot fully understand. But just like the wind blows. You know when the Holy Spirit is moving. You don't have to understand everything. Say, saying, put your sail up, Nicodemus. God's moving in your life. The Holy Spirit's moving. It'll carry you into the kingdom of God if you'll let it. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. This is Nicodemus' last question to Jesus, and it reveals that he's stuck in in an intellectual and a philosophical deadlock in his mind. He needs everything to make sense, and what makes sense to Nicodemus is good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. If you be good, God likes you. If you're not good, he doesn't like you. He, he couldn't wrap his mind around Jesus saying, listen, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the Holy Spirit making you new on the inside, in the depths of your soul. That, that's how you're saved. you got to be born again. The original language, as we mentioned earlier, distinguishes Nicodemus as not simply a teacher, but the teacher in Israel. He's the teacher. He's the most well-known, most sought-after, most respected teacher of Scripture in Israel. More Facebook fans, more Twitter followers, more bloggits, more sermon downloads than anyone, more tape sets if we were still doing that. He would have been highly intelligent, known the Scriptures inside and out. And that's why Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, how how are you missing this? The whole Old Testament has, has been pointing to this. It's all about me. All the scriptures are about me. I I, I told you what this would be like in the Old Testament. In, In Ezekiel, he's saying, Nicodemus, don't you remember in Ezekiel when I said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. Or in Jeremiah and Nicodemus when I said behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jesus is saying, I've been talking about this for centuries, Nicodemus, and you're missing it. You can't see it. The we that Jesus refers to in verse 11 is referring to him and all of the prophets who came before him, including John the Baptist, who had pointed to Jesus. That's what the we represents. Perhaps what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus can best be summed up this way He's saying, Nicodemus, do you know God? Or do you merely know about God? There's a big difference. Then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, we're still talking about basic stuff here, in Nicodemus. You should be putting the pieces together from Scripture. If you don't understand that I'm the Savior, all, all the prophets were talking about, if you don't understand that it was talking about being born again, you're not going to understand the deep things of God. The idea is if you can't get addition, how are you going to get multiplication, Nicodemus? Verse 13 Jesus says, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm the only person who's ever been to heaven. I can tell you about the deep things of God. I can tell you about this because I come from heaven. And there are lots of other people out there who claim revelations and visions and fresh insights into God. He says, none of them have been there. I came from heaven. I know what I'm talking about. Something that's kind of interesting. I don't have time to delve into this, so I'm going to blog about it Wednesday. But just two quick points of interest. Did you notice that Jesus said, there's nobody who's been to heaven? At that point in time, Jesus says nobody's been to heaven. So what's happened to every believer who's died up until that point? Where is Moses? Where is Abraham? Where is Noah? Jesus in that moment says, no one's been to heaven yet. So where are they? Make sure we have your email address. I'm going to blog about it on Wednesday. (laughs) shameless right just shameless so and then you'll also notice this jesus says the son of man he's talking about himself and and then what's the tense there he says who is present tense in heaven present tense that's the mystery of god he exists outside of time but entered our time dimension as a man what i want to say about that is uh, i have no further explanation for you at all i just wanted to remind you that it's impossible for us to fully comprehend god to understand his omnipresence every now and then you need to have a moment where all i'm trying to do is remind you this is god this is us so we can understand this much of god but every now and then he gives us just a little hint like here's a concept just just have some fun remembering that i'm god i'm god and I just want to point something out every now and then that just blows your mind and makes you go, he's, he's God. He's not my equal. We're not having an evenly matched conversation with God here. He's being very gracious in allowing us to even know him. And then Jesus points to an Old Testament story, which Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. And, and this was a really, really strange story. The kind of thing, if you were preaching on it, you'd get there and you'd be like, Let's just skip that one and just sort of go on. Nobody really knows what's going on in the story, why it's there. It's never explained in the Old Testament. It's very odd, but Nicodemus would have been very familiar with it. And Jesus is going to help Nicodemus understand how this story is pointing to him. So to set the scene, Israel has uh, been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Or lots of really bad things happen to them because they don't trust God. But God's been miraculously providing food for the Israelites. It would just appear on the ground every morning. It's this bread-like substance called manna. And so, so this is the scene. God's providing. They're in the wilderness. In the book of Numbers in the Bible, it, the story goes like this. It says, "...and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses." Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. God has rescued the Israelites. They sound like my kids. This where they sound like, honestly. You know, it's like we're driving back from science world, and they're like, we never get to do anything fun. It's like, what were what we doing 10 minutes ago? You know, just short memory. So, God has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and they have to go through this season of going through the wilderness before they reach their destiny, before they reach the promised land, their new home. And while they're in the wilderness, God's miraculously providing for them, but they're getting discouraged because they're still in the wilderness. And as discouragement sets in, they begin to grumble, and suddenly they're grumbling against God's provision for their life. They're grumbling against God's provision for their life. Have you ever done that? Have you ever grumbled against God's provision? Maybe God's provided a spouse for you. And that's too convicting. Let's move on. So verse six, verse six, it says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. So God sends judgment on the people of Israel. Their grumbling against him was a sin. And sin is often represented by snakes or serpents in Scripture. So their sin produces judgment. And the judgment for their sin produces, you can write this out, death. The judgment for their sin produces death. So their sin is literally taking physical form in these snakes and is killing them. It's resulting in death. Fiery serpents just means the snakes were venomous and and being bitten by one would result in death. So I think we're in agreement. This is a bad situation they're in. They've grumbled against God. They've sinned against God. Their sin produces death and judgment in the form of these serpents. In verse seven in Numbers, it says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. This is huge. They recognize that the real issue is not the snakes. The real issue is their sin. It's their sin that's created the problem. And how often do we experience the consequences of our sin and we want God to deal with the consequences without ever acknowledging that we brought it on ourselves by sinning. We created the mess. And what we really need to be going to God for is forgiveness rather than saying, can you fix this? rather asking for forgiveness first. So they confess that their sin is bringing death upon them. It's their fault. And they recognize that their only hope is crying out to God. It says, so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So he's going to say, make it out of bronze. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. This is just weird. So guys would read this and they'd be like, this is weird. He's having like, you know, a snake on a pole. God doesn't really like snakes in scripture. What's, what's going on? Let's d- dive into this a little bit. The, the most accurate word for pole in that verse is actually standard. He says, make a standard. And a standard would be, you might have seen this in medieval movies. It was a pole and it's got a crossbeam about three quarters of the way up. And they would sort of tie their flag long ways to it tie it to the two corners of the cross beam and the top and the bottom to make it spread out. So it's literally a cross is what it is. Are you seeing where this is going? So in the next verse, we'll find out that the serpent was made from bronze. And bronze, you can write this down, is a picture of judgment in the Bible. Where bronze is used, it's always used in the, in the context of judgment. So what God has done is he's told Moses To make a symbol for the people's sin. A fiery serpent. Make a symbol of their sin out of bronze. A symbol of judgment. And put it on a standard. Put it on a cross. And then God says whoever looks to this standard. Whoever looks to this cross will will live. And it says so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent he lived. That's it. That's it. That's simple. That's simple. The solution God gave was not, you need, you need to kill all the snakes. That's what you need to do. God didn't say, just, just pretend they're not there. Deny the snake nature. God, God didn't say, what, what you need to do is pass anti-snake legislation. That's what's going to change this situation. He doesn't say, you, you need to try and ascend to the place where you're not affected by these snakes anymore. You need to climb the pole yourself. And God didn't say, you, you need to look to Moses, your holy leader. And he'll save you. You know, nobody else could look at the snake for you. You had to do it for yourself. And I'm sure there were people that said, that's that's ridiculous. I'm not even going to go look at the snake. That's so stupid. And those people died. Let's go back to John's gospel in, in verse 14. Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself, be lifted up, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says, Nicodemus, all that, that story you didn't understand, that's all about me. It's about what I've come to the earth to do for mankind. Later on in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to write this about Jesus. He's going to say, for he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when Jesus was lifted up on that cross, he became our sin. He received the judgment from the Father in our place. And in exchange for our sin, he gave us his sinlessness, his righteousness, his cleanness, so that all of us who are destined for death because of our own sin could be saved by looking to him on that cross. And then we reach the most famous verse in the entire Bible, and I'm gonna read it along with the two verses that follow it because all of them together are really the complete gospel. And this is it. This is how you're saved. This is how you get to heaven. This is, this is the true nature of reality. This is life and death and eternity laid out in black and white. This is the mission of Jesus. This is what he really taught. Explaining the truth so nobody could be confused. It's the greatest news that the universe has ever received. In verse 16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You know, in just one verse, in John three sixteen, Jesus communicates the father's heart, the father's plan, And the Father's will. This is on your outlines. He communicates the Father's heart, which is simply he loved the world. He loved the world. That's the heart of the Father. He communicated the Father's plan. He gave his only begotten son. And he communicated the Father's will that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what God wants. He wants everyone to have eternal life. And it's a small thing, but, but I want to mention this because in, in the world of Bible translations, there's a lot of different translations. And uh, if you have something other than the New King James or New American Standard or something like that, your John 3.16 might not have the word begotten in there. But it's really important because if it just says he gave his only son, the truth is Jesus is not God's only son. Every single man in this room who believes in Jesus has been adopted as a son of God. The word begotten means comes directly from. Jesus is the only begotten son of the father. If you put them together, you're like, those two are related. If you put me right now next to the father, you'd be like, maybe, but like something must have gone horribly wrong in the gene pool, like, you know. And here's, here's the amazing thing. So Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He's the only begotten. That's what distinguishes him. Here's the amazing thing that, that Paul will write later on in the book of Romans. It says that Jesus died so that he could be the firstborn from the dead among many brethren. Among many. The idea is that when we get to heaven, we are going to be and appear more like Jesus than many of us would be comfortable even talking about right now because we feel like it might be blasphemous. But when we spend eternity in God, with God in his presence, the idea is gonna be that people would look at us and they would go, they must be family. That's the incredible destiny that God has. That's what Jesus is going to do in us. It's more amazing than we could ever possibly understand. Verse 18 is a profound Reality statement. It's about the present nature of judgment, and every single one of us must understand that. In the book of John, Jesus is making it crystal clear that everyone, right now, present tense, is either saved or not saved. He's saying, Listen, the judgment that you think is coming in the future is a formality. Every single person right now is either not under condemnation or under condemnation. You are not in a limbo state right now to be determined at a later date. You are in one of those two places. On the road to eternal life or on the road to eternal death. There is no middle. There's not time to figure it out after death. There's not. I don't know what you believe. But there's not time to figure it out after death. You are on one of those roads right now. Right now. That's why John 3.16 is such good news. That's why it's called good news. Not kind of good news. Good news. When you understand that you've been saved from death, that you were destined for death, but Jesus has saved you from that and given you everlasting life instead, things begin to change in your life. When Jesus asks you to do something for him, the reaction of the saved person cannot be, mm, uh, I'm gonna really have to think about that. The reaction of the same saved person when Jesus asks you to do something, when you see something he's asked you to do in his word, can only be, I owe you my life. I was headed for eternal death without you. Everything I have. My life, my time, my money, my resources, my gifts, my every breath, they belong to you. I only have them because you gave them to me. It's all yours. It's all yours. That's what it looks like when the wind of the Spirit begins to blow in a person's life and they've been born again. If that, if that doesn't describe you, if you're the person when you find out God is asking you something that goes, ah, mm, give me some time to think about it. You must not understand. You've been saved from death. From death. From death. You were dying when Jesus came to you. You're just counting down the hours and the days and the years. You were dying when Jesus came to you and rescued you. The motivation that drives every true believer, every born-again believer, is simply this. Jesus wants me to and I love Jesus, therefore I'll do it. Jesus wants me to, and I love Jesus, so I do it. That's the motivation. It's why you love your spouse. It's it's why you work hard. It's why you teach your kids about God. It's why you pray. It's why you worship. It's why you give. It's why you serve. It's why you choose the path of humility, because Jesus asks you to, and you love Jesus. If you need any other reason, then maybe you're not born again if you need any other reason. And there are many other benefits, but the motivation has to come down to, I love Jesus, and so I love to do what Jesus asks me to do. You know, an old legend tells of a traveler attempting to circle the globe who found himself trapped in quicksand. And as he slowly sank, Confucius came by and Confucius said, Confucius say, it is evident man should avoid such situations. And he went on his way. Muhammad came by and said, Alas, it is the will of Allah. And he went on his way. Buddha came by and said, Let this man's dilemma be an illustration for many. And went on his way. Krishna came by and said, Better luck next time. And he (laughs) went, went on his way. Jesus came by, reached down, and pulled the man out. And while others tell us what we must do to reach up to heaven, only Jesus reaches down and pulls us out of our hopeless situation. The father didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, to give us some spiritual sayings we could have on our coffee mugs or to make us feel bad because of our spiritual inadequacy. He he came for one reason. The son came for one reason, to save us, because we could not save ourselves. In verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And Jesus answers a huge, huge question here. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what the sin is that sends people to hell. Because there's really only one sin that sends people to hell. It's not like the scales get weighed and when you cross a certain threshold, you go to hell. Jesus has made clear there's really only one sin that sends you to hell. And the sin is the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Jesus says, I I came to bring you out of the darkness and you said, no thanks. I prefer the darkness. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. He offered it to you. And you said, no thanks. You can write this down. We've all chosen between salvation or condemnation present tense we've all chosen right now we've all chosen salvation or condemnation that's what jesus is saying he's saying you you don't get to choose when you decide or put the decision off till later for your convenience he said whether you realize it or not you have chosen one of those two right now salvation or condemnation you've made a choice Please remember this next time you're in a discussion with somebody who who wants to undermine your faith. Just remember, the issue is never evolution. The issue is never the origins of the universe. The issue is never the immaculate conception. According to Jesus, the one and only reason people don't come to the light is because they prefer the darkness. So when people are in that place, pray for them to reach the point where they get tired of the darkness. That's all you can do. Verse 20, Jesus says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You remember the story of the the fiery serpent on the standard. Do you remember what set the whole solution in motion? It was the Israelites confessing, we've sinned and we cannot save ourselves. And Jesus explains that is the biggest stumbling block for people coming to God. You cannot come to God until you reach the place where you say, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I am not good enough. I cannot be good enough. Jesus says, there's a lot of people who are unwilling to do that. They're just unwilling to do that. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so the choices are step into the light which will reveal that you are a sinner who needs saving or stay in the familiar comfort of the darkness and pretend you don't need saving. And the irony of it is that God already knows the depths of your heart. He knows the depths of my heart. What he's waiting for is for us to be honest enough to confess it to him. To say, God, you you already know who I am. You, You know what's going on in the depths of me. And God, I'm here because I know what's going on in the depths of me. I'm not a good person. (laughs) I'm not a good person, deep down. I'm selfish. I'm nothing like Jesus, deep down. That's why I need you. I'm not not good enough on my own. I can never be good enough for God's standard. I, I need you to save me. That's the stumbling block. And so nobody can ever accuse Jesus of not being clear. Nobody can ever accuse him of not being clear. And your reaction to what Jesus just taught us will tell you where you are with God this morning. Some of you are overwhelmed with gratitude. and You've just been reminded of what Jesus has done for you and you're thinking, God, thank you so much for saving me. You know you're saved and that is the right response. It's just continual gratitude to God. And if that's you, I just wanna ask that you would just check your heart when it comes to obedience to God and just say, man, is there anything God is asking you to do? And if you're honest in your reaction it's revealed that you've forgotten that he saved you from death. And you're contemplating whether or not you're going to obey God. You've forgotten that he he saved you from death. Come back to that, come back to that. And some of you are thinking, oh no. I've loved the darkness. And I've chosen condemnation. That's where I am right now. And I have wonderful news for you. Later on in his life, Nicodemus will become a believer in Jesus because Nicodemus will realize the truth that that being religious, having social standing, being wealthy, being a good person, is not what saves you. You know, my testimony is that I'm not a good person. I'm not. I, I, I know me. I know me. My testimony is the same testimony God wants to give you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's my testimony. God loved me. He loved me. That's my whole testimony. He loved me. And he loves you. If you look to him to save you, he will. He will make you born again. You'll be new on the inside. You'll begin again with Jesus. In a few moments, you're going to have an opportunity to do just that. But for everyone else, if you've ever had trouble believing that it's as simple as believing in Jesus, that's one of the reasons God gave us communion. So that when the voice of doubt starts rising up in you and and you start thinking things like, oh, I'm not good enough. You can take the elements in your hand. You can taste them and remember, I was never good enough. I was never good enough. Jesus was. Jesus was good enough. The same thing that saved you then is the same thing that keeps you safe today. The blood of Jesus and his work on the cross. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God.